Good morning once more. Please uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three. So we'll be starting in verse 18. I will read through to the end of the chapter. That's verse 23. You can follow along in your own Bibles. First Corinthians 3:18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ are beyond our mind, seemingly beyond our capacity even to receive, but you say the world is ours, and life is ours, and death is ours, and Christ is ours, and so we ask for the ability, for the grace to be able to receive the goodness that you would bestow on us. You are truly a generous God. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if those last two verses woke you up, but they sure should. Um, all is yours. I like heavy theology. I like that stuff. There's a there's a title of a book um, that I've never read, um, which is which is always going to be most books. Just let's just. But it's it's a book about food and Jesus, and it's called Light Theology and Heavy Cream. And, uh, and I, I have it, I own it because of the title. Cause I love the title and it makes me want to make something with heavy whipping cream because that's just good stuff. And, and the first point of today's sermon is if a recipe calls for skim milk, you just need to, you just need to cut that out of your life. You just don't need that influence. Um, cream is rich and it's good cause it's heavy. Think of heavy, heavy theology in that light. If you can, you know, at the end of this passage, we read all things are yours, included, but not limited to life itself, the world, death, things present, things to come, etc. Okay, that, that's some good, rich, heavy theology. It's, like, it, it's, it's not like the big books on the top shelf. It's like the heavy cream on the top of the milk, okay? It's the best. This stuff is the best. This paragraph here, ending chapter three, is a summary and a conclusion of some of Paul's first arguments in the book. So much of this will feel like a review and a reminder, and that's good because we need those. He spent much of chapter one and chapter two talking about the wisdom of God contrasted to the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world is foolishness by God's standards. Paul showed that true wisdom, divine wisdom, was seen most clearly in the cross. The very thing that the so-called wise wanted to avoid and minimize and criticize even. So when we talked about Paul's view of wisdom, we also drew from James' thoughts on the subject. James describes the wisdom of the world as demonic, right? He calls the wisdom that is from above pure, peaceable, and willing to yield, which is exactly the opposite of everything we know about the Corinthian church. So the Corinthians' false view of wisdom caused divisions rather than peace. Wisdom that is from above is is pure and peaceable. And, and this is going to be the next topic that Paul tackled um, 
sorry, this is, this is the topic that Paul tackled in the first three chapters. The Corinthian church was contentious. They were quarrelers. They had schisms. And one of the causes, really one of the root causes for that division was their tendency to elevate men at the expense of the glory of God and, and put their trust in man rather than put the, putting their trust in the, the God who died in the cross, in the crucifixion. Paul sums up this section of his long argument about divisions and unity by saying in verse 20, 21, excuse me, therefore, let no one boast in men. He says, just stop it. Just don't do that anymore. Thank you. While the scripture says that if anyone glories or boasts, he ought to boast in God alone, but the Corinthians were too busy being proud of whose leader was whose and which club they were part of, who their pastor was, which theological camp they belonged to. Uh, Paul sort of mocks them for this in this chapter, right? He says, in chapter one, he's like, oh, you say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And then he asks them in the most sarcastic way, was Paul crucified for you? Hmm. He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. So by now, Paul has revealed these errors, though he'll dig a little deeper in chapter four. He'll, he, he's taken issue with their idea of false wisdom. He's taken issue with the divisive nature of their boasting. And he has corrected them and he'll continue to correct them in the next chapters. We're only three chapters in and most of the book is telling about how, the, how wrong they are. So I'm like, buckle up. Uh, but, but Paul knows, he knows how to season his speech with grace or his writing with grace in this case. In the midst of this corrective letter, Paul offers this astounding grace. He says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. One team. This is where I hope to spend uh, the better part, maybe not the most, but the better part of today's message, because these are beauties and truths that are worth our attention. But we got to start at the beginning in verse 18. Just the first... Uh, sentence there. Let no one deceive himself. I like this. Paul is speaking to people who are very committed to being right, um, to, to very committed to seeming right, very committed to being the one who wins the argument and the one who has control of their particular position. He's talking to people who, while they themselves are not wise or mighty or noble, according to chapter one, that's how Paul described the congregation there in Corinth, they still see worldly wisdom and worldly power and honor and worldly glory, nobility, as, as all these things as worthy of their respect and pursuit and allegiance. And the way it goes is that the person who idolizes these kinds of worldly values inevitably begins to see their own value in the same things, and that's a mistake. As they would see the smooth-talking sophists, we were introduced to those guys in chapter one, right? They, they would you know, give these great speeches. And they'd see those guys at their best. They would look at themselves and then conclude that if they spoke better than the next guy, then they were better than the next guy. You become like your idols, right? You become like your false gods. But th this kind of thinking, Paul, to this kind of thinking, Paul says, you're only fooling yourselves. When you tell yourself at night, I'm better than him because I use the big words and I talk real good. He says, no one believes that. No one believes you're better than him. No one thinks that except you. Stop deceiving yourselves. Paul's almost forcing them to admit that they do indeed have a tendency to deceive themselves by saying, let no one deceive themselves. Stop that behavior. Now, in the verses directly preceding this, if you were to look back, Paul made his temple argument, right? He said, you are God's building. And then he says, you collectively, y'all, 
right? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we saw that rather than being an individualistic statement with each person being their own temple and all the temples getting together for the big temple conference, he says, you are one temple. You are the temple. You, the church, are the temple. And then he gives this terrifying warning. The one who defiles the temple, God will destroy. And this, after a less terrifying but still pretty scary warning that each one's works will be tested by fire. And some of them will have everything but their lives burned from them. So in, in light of these warnings, Paul now says, don't lie to yourself, you guys. Now, what would the lie be? In this context, what is the self-deception that the Corinthians were guilty of? Well, we, we know the answer to that, actually. The lie is this kind of wisdom matters and continues to divide from those less wise believers over there that align more to the apostle that I don't like as much as you know, this much is good and a sign of my own spiritual maturity. These are lies. No one believes them, except maybe the person telling them. When Paul says, do not deceive yourself, he's saying, don't believe the lie that carnal wisdom makes you better than someone else. Don't believe that your divisions, the divisions in the body, your schisms, your cliquishness, don't believe that those are not an offense to God because they are. Now, I believe I mentioned this when we were going through chapter two, but one of the causes of division in the church is this false idea of a perfect church. That we found it. We figured it out. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. We're the good guys. The, the idea that there's a church where there's no tares, only wheat, contrary to what Jesus literally said to his disciples. But there's that uh, idolatry almost of the perfect church. And if these people were to realize that there are, there are two types of people in their church, they might divide to those guys over here and those guys, uh, us over here. And then in your new group, you start to notice differences again that didn't show up when at first, and now you're like, ah, I found some more people. Those aren't the, the true church, so your church has to divide again. And then you keep trying to purify your church and get more pure and more, more pure and more pure. And you, you're forcing everyone through a finer sieve. This would have happened in Corinth. Paul knew it. He says you're going to keep on dividing and dividing and dividing. And this might continue until every person is the first of the body. But somewhere along this timeline, when the initial purifying is happening, the division, the divisive person tells themselves that they're purifying the church. We're doing a good work. We're doing a good work by just keeping it pure, just keeping the good guys in and the bad guys out. He says, that's a lie. Don't deceive yourself. Paul would say, that's wood, hay, and stubble, and it's doomed for the fire. Don't believe everything you think. Don't deceive yourselves. And one of these lies we like to believe is that we're wise. So Paul says, if anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. There's a little more sarcasm here. Remember in chapter one where Paul essentially says, God loves foolish things. You know how I know? You want proof? He chose you. That's what Paul says in chapter one. And, and that probably wouldn't have been easy to hear for a church that loves how smart they sound, Right? When Paul says, not many are wise, most of the people hearing that would have said, yeah, not many, but I'm not like many. I'm kind of a cut above the rest. Each one is probably saying to themselves, well, I have wisdom. And Paul is saying, if anyone seems to be wise, putting the so-called wise back in their place. Also, this is another clear stab at the sophists, the guys that like to win arguments, right? Remember in Corinth, there's this resurgence of, resurgence, excuse me, of this kind of sophistication that didn't seek truth. They just wanted to sound right. 
They didn't care about the argument as long as they won it. And they wanted to seem wise. That was seem wise. That was literally the goal of some of the Corinthians. But this empty, uh, this is all emptiness. The wisdom of the world or the wisdom that exists in this age, as Paul says, is all form and no function. It doesn't actually get anything done. It's the polished, empty shell of wisdom. So to these people, Paul says, become a fool like me. Once more, we need to be reminded that he's talking in terms of worldly wisdom and the way the world sees foolishness. What does the world see as the epitome of foolishness? According to the wisdom of the world, the cross is as foolish as you can get. 1 Corinthians 1.18, we already read this. It says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the cure to the puffed up false wisdom of the world. Go to the cross. This is the solution to that self-deceiving, self-serving spirit inside the church and out. This is the solution. Go to the cross. And the way Paul talks about the cross here is by unapologetically calling it foolishness according to their broken standard of wisdom. And he is unapologetically inviting the Corinthians to be the fools of the world by making the cross the center of their church and the center of their lives. If anyone thinks he is wise, first, realize you're only lying to yourself. No one thinks you're wise. If anyone seems wise according to this broken standard, well then repent, become a fool. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool. How? By clinging to the message of the cross of Christ, which is foolishness to those who are perishing. Okay, we need application here, don't we? How can we be more foolish? I need you to ask yourself. I need you to have that conversation within yourself, with your heart, and ask, how, how, can, I, how can I become more of a fool? Or should I? Is this good? Is this a good question? This might be uncomfortable. But this is where Paul is inviting us. And here's how. Here's the answer to that question. Sacrifice yourself for the glory of God. This is the foolishness of the cross, right? Paul makes this very clear. You guys have read 1 Corinthians, right? And then 2 Corinthians, the sequel, better than the first, okay? He's very clear about this. The message of the cross is that Christ sacrificed himself for us and then told his followers, take up your cross and follow me. This is very simple, but it's not easy. Pour your life out for the good of others to the glory of God. You are naturally wired, due largely to the fall, of course, but also by cultural considerations outside your control, you are wired to serve yourself. Your natural state is a selfish state. Seek first the kingdom of me. Full stop. This leads to the divisions in the church. This leads to the divisions that the Corinthian church was experiencing. Remember, the division wasn't really the problem. It was the fruit of the problem. The root was selfishness and pride and boasting in men rather than in the cross. So you're selfish, and in this world, if you serve your, yourself well, if you're good at being selfish, then you will be seen as wise, and you will be successful. If you make a life for yourself that looks comfortable and good, you'll be seen by others as wise. But we're not called to live for ourselves, and we're not even called to live for this world. <laughs> We're called to live for Christ with our eyes fixed on the next world. And one of the ways we do that is by living for others. Here's how you can be foolish. Sacrifice. 
Give up what you have for other people. Give the extra coat to someone who doesn't have a coat. To use an example Jesus actually uses. That seems foolish, doesn't it? Sacrificial generosity is one way we can enter into the foolishness of the cross. But that's not the only kind of sacrifice. If we want to be wholly consecrated, right? Entirely dedicated to Christ and him crucified. Take my life and let it be to thee. Spending your time, of course, you know, is more expensive than money. Um, It's a non-renewable resource. (laughs) But having every moment given every moment sacrifice to the Lord Jesus, what would you have me do with my life? This is the way of the cross. You are laying down your life moment by moment in big decisions and small, saying, how can I serve Christ and the ones he loves, even at great cost, at great expense to myself? You know, I know this is what this is talking about because that's what Paul says. He says later, I die daily. And then twice now coming up, he's going to say, imitate me. How, Paul? By crucifying yourself. I'm giving you spoiler alerts here. This is chapter is coming up, okay? But this is where he goes with this argument. He says, I die daily. Now, I think a lot of people would say that's, fool- that's a foolish way to live, really. I think live daily would be more in line with common sense and worldly wisdom. Paul says, you think you're wise because you're so good at serving yourself. Oh, great. You're fools. Become the right kind of fool. Come on in. The water's terrible, but it's worth it. This is the kind of foolishness, the complete and utter disregard for self in the wholehearted pursuit of Christ and his glory, where you will finally find wisdom, not just in form, but the substance. The wisdom of the world is a selfish, egotistical wisdom. It is impossible to make the cross central to life and faith, and at the same time, live in that kind of self-serving egoism. I shared from John Stott a couple weeks ago. He said, no man can simultaneously give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. Pick your message. The cross precludes pride. It makes pride impossible. And if the complete rejection of selfish pride makes us fools in the eyes of the world, then let us become fools that we might become truly wise. Remember, the cross is the wisdom of God. The cross is the power of God. It is at the cross where the riches of God are found. So to become fools in the eyes of the world, but wise in the eyes of God, we shape our lives around the cross. We want to say with Paul, I die daily. We want to say with Paul, I was crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Which Christ? The one that was crucified and raised from the dead. That's all foolishness right there. Most people would say wisdom is how to live well. Christianity says wisdom shows you how to die well every single day. Wisdom is used to preserve your life in most common sense, you know, commonsensical circles. Jesus, who embodied incarnate wisdom, he says, take up your cross and follow me. That's not self-preservation at work. And just in case people were quick to say, he doesn't really mean that, does he? Luke 14, 26, he says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own life, he can't be my disciple. You think Paul's words and Corinthians are strong? They're not as strong as Christ's. In his his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he famously wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. For Paul to tell the church, become fools, he is saying, come and die to your arrogance and your pride. 
your ego, your childish need to sound right. Like, I have to sound right. I need to sound smart. Die to that. Become a fool by taking the way of the cross. If you do this, you will lose the world's respect and gain the riches of God. In John chapter 12, verse 43, John writes about some of the Pharisees. You know, some of the Pharisees believed. We always lump them into the bad guy section, which fits most of the time. But some of the Pharisees believed in Jesus. They believed in Jesus, but they chose not to follow him. Approval from the wrong people. It says they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. The Corinthians would have rather had the world, all those wise, smart, uh, you know, sophists, that say, oh, you are wise. They would rather have that than for God to say, well done. You are wise, good and faithful servant. Paul calls the church to repent by taking the way of the cross, which is always a path of repentance. And he reminds them once more the way they think is wise, the, the, the way they think is wise, the, the wisdom that they have in their minds, that's a dead end anyway. Look at verse 19. It says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. Now, this is interesting. I spent way too much time studying this, honestly, but you came. You showed up this morning. You signed up for it. It's fine. You're here. This is a reference from Job, okay? Job 5.13. And it's sort of ironic because this quotation is from one of Job's friends. Remember Job's friends? Everyone loves Job's friends. Uh, they were the guys who showed up to the sick guy who had just buried all of his children and lost everything he owned, and then they say, this is probably your fault. Those guys, that's who we're talking about. Great friends. But worldly wisdom, didn't they? They were the wise ones. They had the arguments in place. They had their words. They had, they had their theology all in, in line. The friends of Job had a form of worldly wisdom, but the kind of wisdom they had was, and still is, a common understanding of divine retribution. If something bad happens to you, well, you know why? It's probably because you did something bad. It's perfect. It's tidy. You can, it's a worldview. You can put it in a box and tie with a bow, and it's all false. It's lies. Eliphaz, that's the one who's saying this, this uh, statement in Job 5.13 that Paul quotes here. Eliphaz was telling Job that God had caught him in his craftiness. But Job wasn't the wise person in that passage, was he? Job was scraping off scabs with a broken jar. Job wasn't wise at that time. Job, If Job had attended the Corinthian church in his humble, sickly, tragic state, then he would have fit nicely with the not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble that Paul talks about in chapter 1. Now, were the words of Eliphaz true? Yeah, because in the end of Job, Eliphaz is caught in his own wisdom. And, is brought, and has, Job has to pray for them. They have to repent. The friends have to repent. God is corrected and caught in his own errors. The wisdom of man, which would be, could be seen in Job's friends or the sophists or the Corinthians, it is foolishness with God. If you were to further consider Job's story, which I think Paul expected us to do, actually, because he's writing to literate people, you would see that in the end, the one who looked the most weak, Job, ended up being the most blessed. That's the way of the cross. That's pretty much where Paul takes his argument in verse 21. He's going to bring up another Old Testament passage. In 20, he says, uh, And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. This is taken from Psalm 94, verse 11. And, and I think Paul's aware that his audience, especially the Jewish audience, which there are plenty of those in the church in Corinth, they would have had a thorough working knowledge of the Psalms. Okay, Psalm 94, the entire Psalm is about the godly weak, being defended against the worldly strong. It would be an example to the Corinthians who could see that the godly fools, so-called, would be 
near to the God who knows true wisdom. And if you, if you knew all of Psalm 94, you could see at the beginning of the psalm in verse 4, it says, They utter speech and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. It's exactly the thing Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for. And the psalm goes on in, in Psalm 94, verse 8. It says, Understand you senseless among the people, and you fools, when will you be wise? Now, this is from God's perspective here, the one who knows the difference between real foolishness and real wisdom. It goes on, He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge. And then you come to verse 11 in Psalm 94, and Paul says, the, and Paul quotes that verse here in Corinthians, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, but they are futile. Your ideas aren't that great. <laughs> and your best ideas are not what gives you access to the least of God's blessings. God's blessings are for you and available to you only, but always through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul keeps nudging the church back to the cross. It's why Paul is so stubborn about determining to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Remember that from chapter one? It's not because he intends to deprive the church of God's blessings. It's because he can't stand the fact that they are neglecting those blessings by minimizing the cross. He can't stand the fact that while all the blessings of God are available to the church through Christ, that the church will still go and boast in men. And they're more proud of a good teacher named Apollos than they are for Jesus, the Son of God. The men whose thoughts are futile, the so-called wise who God will catch in their own craftiness, they were, they were proud of these people. And so he says in verse 21, Therefore, let no one boast in men which really sums up the arguments about boasting, the divisions based on their favorite teacher and favorite apostle and all that, or the church's hesitancy to appear foolish by associating with the cross because either love, um, because they either love the praise of men rather than the praise of God or because they just really like being in the right club and everything. Older translations of this verse, they say, do not glory in men, and I like that. Do not see the false temporary wisdom of the world as something glorious or worthy of praise. Let no one boast or glory in men. And then Paul gives the reason for this that ought to blow your mind. He's saying all your ways are stupid. <laughs> He's been saying your wisdom isn't worth anything. He says your ideas aren't that great. You think you sound smart. You don't sound smart. And he says, you think there's value in those things. And the real final reason for not arguing about the things they're arguing about, the real final reason for not seeking glory and wisdom and, and virtue over here is he says, you're eating out of a dog bowl out of a and you're sitting at a five-star restaurant. None of the things you want are over there. So he says, for all things are yours. This is a breathtaking statement. All things are yours. Paul likes these big, statement pieces, you know, Ephesians 1, 3, where he says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every blessing, they're all, all of it. It's all yours in Christ. It's too large for us to reasonably grapple with. These are truths that must be handled in worship rather than rhetoric. They are spiritual truths beyond our capabilities. Tozer, in talking about the attributes of God, the big heavy theology, like the heavy cream, he calls these high theological truths, truths for the heart. And this is good. 
Because while Paul is arguing with the mind, he's engaging them with their mind. Ultimately, he's not hoping to change their mind. He's hoping to reshape their souls. He's hoping to reshape their hearts. Remember, it was the problem of the heart that led the Corinthians to the problems they were in. It was the problem of the heart that led them to divide over these secondary and even tertiary issues. It was a problem of the heart that led them to harm the body of Christ with their arrogance So Paul addresses those things and he shows them there's enough in Christ to satisfy your hearts. The sense of belonging that you think you can have from boasting in men and being part of the club, blah, blah, blah. In, at this feast, over here, it's in Christ. The identity that you're seeking and you think you have to defend by being divisive and like, I can't be identified with that person. I can't be identified with that person. That identity you're seeking is only to be found, and it is found in its fullness in unity with the Son of God. The things that they were arguing about, he starts the list in 22. He says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, right? He says, Paul is yours. Apollos is yours. Cephas is yours. Now he's doing two things here. One, he's telling them in all, all the factions, they're not really divided, right? They had their denominations. They had the Church of Paul and the Church of Apollos and the Church of Peter. He's like, actually, everybody gets everything. So, like... Yeah, we, we, we washed all your whites with a red sock. Everyone's the same color now, okay? It's all good, okay? And you'll love it. It says there's no, there's no division. There's no, you have Paul, yeah. You have Apollos, sure. You have Cephas, Peter, absolutely. You don't have to pick and choose. They're all yours. All the apostles exist to serve you. But there's another thing he's emphasizing here. In chapter one, the issue of schism was brought up and there were people who were saying, I am of Apollos and I am of Paul. And Paul says, no, 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 no. No, you're not of me. I belong to you. I exist for your good and benefit. I'm here to serve you. Paul himself is saying, I belong to you. That's humility that is striking. Dominations didn't exist. They're just imaginary. Paul, Apollo, Cephas would have maybe disagreed on some stuff, maybe big stuff, but each one existed for the good of the church. To say I am of Paul or I am of Apollos, it's too narrow. The whole world is yours. Not just Paul's little section of it. And he actually says that next on the list. Or the world, <laughs> the world is yours. Now, this is different from the old cliche, we're in the world and not of it, right? You hear people say, oh, we're in the world, not of it. Mm. That's not the whole truth. It's true that we're not of the world. We are of a different spirit than the spirit of the world. You know why? Because the world belongs to us. The whole thing. The whole created world exists for the good of the church, to be used by you for your growth, for your good. This was actually part of the early church's understanding that uh, Christians in the early, in the first century said the world was created for the sake of the church. When just, and it's very well, very well written. Um, and he argued, this is his argument. He says, if you were to kill all the Christians, if you actually could, which you can't, but if you could, the entire physical universe would collapse on itself. Because the created world itself was only existed by God so that man could have fellowship with God through the church. No church, no purpose anymore. He'll just get rid of it. God is holding together the universe by the word of his power in Jesus. The world is yours. Life and death, also yours. Don't spend it all in one place. Now, I, I can't... I can't really blame you if some of this goes, you know, to your head and you get a little puffed up, which isn't the point, of course, because this is, this is good stuff. This is good gifts that God would give you. 
But how can this be? How can Paul say life is yours? Now, I hate to ruin the end, but it's because Christ is yours. Paul wrote to the, Philipp, uh, excuse me, to the Philippians, to live is Christ. What Paul is saying is that this life is not just something that happened. It's not something that merely happens to you. You are not a passive participant in it. No, it is something that has been given to you as a gift. And rather than you belonging to it, to the cold, unfeeling universe, it, life, belongs to you in Christ. Your life is given to you in Christ, and for you to live is Christ, and even to die is gain. Both life and death are yours. You have authority over death. Paul mocks death later on in this book. He says, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Death, which has, and is seen, has been and is seen as an all-powerful end, is now a servant on a leash. Death merely brings you to Christ. This is why Spurgeon could say so boldly, living near the cross of Calvary, thou may think of death with pleasure and welcome it when it comes with intense delight. It is sweet to die in the Lord. It is a covenant blessing to sleep in Jesus. Death is no longer banishment. It is a return from exile, a going home to the many mansions where the loved ones already dwell. Life and death are yours. They serve you. They are your good and your, therefore, your good and your growth, both the present and the future are yours. The moments of your life that you are living now in the present tense are gifts to you. God has given them to you to serve for your sanctification. They are yours. The future is yours. His thoughts to you are to give you a hope and a future. The fear of man, glorying in men, the struggle of the Corinthians, locked them in a place where they were worried about what other people would think. This kind of worry dissolves when you realize the future belongs to you. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within your midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. All are yours. Why would you boast in a small thing like knowing a certain thing or sounding a certain way or winning a certain argument? Why would you boast in belonging to a certain church or a certain club, being associated with a certain way of thinking? When all is yours, God offers you so much more than what you're reaching for. And all that they held on to with clenched fist, defensively, divisively, aggressively, God has more than you have. That shouldn't be a surprise. And all God has is for you in Christ. God has more for you. He's giving you all things. How? Because he has given Christ all things. And as verse 23 says, you are Christ's and Christ is God's. God has given you all things in Christ. Look what Paul has done. He has brought the various factions of the church and let each of them know that they're wrong, <laughs> but also that there's more to be had than they hold on to in their own specific tradition. He has taken the boasters, those who glory in small things, and he told them there's more. There's more glory than you can possibly imagine, and God gives it all to you in Christ. Paul has taken our small perspective of self and expanded it to a universe-sized blessing and says, all this for you is in Christ. Christ is the sum of all spiritual things. Paul seemed a fool to the Corinthians because he was so simple. And because he made so much of just one point, Christ and him crucified. But Paul is letting them in on the big open secret that you now know. Christ is where all the goods are. And I mean 
all the goods. Paul's goal is to fix our eyes on Jesus. This must be our objective as well. Let no one deceive himself in thinking that there are better things outside of Christ. They're not there. They're not to be found. That's where the small stuff is. Let no one deceive himself in thinking that there are small to medium-sized blessings with Christ. Oh, no. It's every blessing in heavenly places in Christ. It's a world of blessings that fills every dimension in time and space. All is yours because God has given all things to his son, Jesus, and you are in him. So run to him, be with him, cling to the cross, our access point for all this goodness. Go to the cross, Christ and him crucified, determined to know nothing but the best, determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, where God has become man in order to offer the blessings of heaven to the likes of us. Let us pray. Jesus, in light of these truths, such as we can understand them, we worship you. God, in, in light of the cross, in the shadow of the cross, we worship you. And determining now, as a church, as your people, to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, to boast in nothing, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, knowing not only that that's my only hope, but also knowing that this is all the riches of God. You have so much for us. You have so much to give, more than we're, our, our faith is capable of receiving. So we pray with the disciples, increase our faith.